So I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. And because this chapter is 44 verses long and because it uh, mentions a lot of different towns, I thought just having the visual would help uh, just to follow the the storyline is in Acts chapter 27. So you can see, you know, modern day Italy is over here. The city of Rome is there. Modern day Greece, otherwise known in Bible times, Macedonia and Achaia. And Asia Minor, which we would think about Turkey and so forth. And you would recognize Bible names like Mysia, Bithynia, uh, Galatia be over here. The island, island of Cyprus, the island of Crete, the continent of Africa. This little inset here is just a blow up of the island of Crete. And our story starts here in a town called Caesarea, just north of Jerusalem. You can see the city of Tarsus is here. That's where uh, Paul the Apostle was born when he was known as Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Antioch, you hear in Acts 11 about the church of Antioch, there it is there. And the story begins that Paul the Apostle in his trials has appealed to Caesar. And to Caesar he will go. But he's being held here in Caesarea and to appeal to Caesar means you've got to make this really, really long journey to Rome. How many know that's a long, long journey? Especially when you don't have jet planes. It's a, a very, very long journey. And as we're going to see, this journey was a whole lot longer than he anticipated. Anybody ever discover that the Lord takes more time than we generally think in the framework in which he should be thinking? So this, I'm only going to take you as far as the island of Malta. And that's Acts 27, starts in Caesarea and ends on the island of Malta. Old King James Bible would say Melita, but it's the modern country of the island of Malta. A peaceful journey ends up to be one tempestuous voyage. Paul is sent to Rome because he has appealed to Caesar. And he's put in the custody of a centurion whose name is Julius. And Julius will find a shipping vessel in Caesarea there um, to start the journey home. And this boat will stop at various ports going along the way. The Bible calls him leading and what's called an Augustan cohort means that he was likely working directly for Caesar himself. Since he carried that kind of authority, he could commandeer any vessel he wanted. And so the, on, as they made their way, they stopped first of all in a place called Sidon here where Paul was allowed, uh, he was on friendly relations with the centurion, he was allowed to get off boat, and he was allowed to visit members of the church there. But the weather did not cooperate. 
Sounds like Northern Ireland, doesn't it? The weather did not cooperate. As they set sail again, the winds would force them to go north, as you can see where the arrows go, instead of west. They had to go north uh, rather than the western direction they desire. It was a calmer and it was a more sheltered way to go, but as you can see on the map, it's twice the length. Uh, that they had to go. They crossed the provinces of Cilicia, Pamphylia, and they found a wind that allowed them to go west along the coast until they harbored at a place called Myra. There, they finally went there. Slow process, relatively calm, the weather not cooperating, but twice the journey that it should have been. There, when they're at that port called Myra, the centurion Julius found another vessel that was on its way from Alexandria, which you have down here in Egypt, and it was on its way to Rome. But because this was a shipping route, and Rome depended upon a lot of wheat and a lot of uh, grain from Egypt, it was common for the boats to leave Egypt, and they would make their journeys up to the city of Rome. They usually carried a lot of wheat, plus other goods and merchandise that they would pick up along the way. And for the time of year that this story happened, it was probably one of the last shipments of grain to go from Egypt to Rome uh, because the weather just gets too bad in their, their winter time to make that journey. So we're on approaching the bad season of weather. As they leave the port of Myra, they would just like to make a straight shot for Rome, but the winds are not favorable. And after a painfully slow journey, they hardly make it to this town here called Nidus. They hardly made it at all. There wasn't wind, there wasn't power to get there. Very, very slow, painfully slow journey. The winds would not allow them just to keep going west by Greece to get to, to Rome. And so the vessel had to sail south towards the island and on the bottom side, the southern side of the island of Crete. There wasn't much power on the southern side of the island, but they eventually got to a port called Fair Havens. That's a good name, isn't it? They eventually got to this port called Fair Havens. And they're somewhat stranded there because they're waiting for some good wind to go. Well, they're going to get it. (laughs) They're waiting for a favorable wind, but the weary sailors were probably relieved to have some respite from the cold weather. They have been constantly fighting the weather. They've been manhandling the sails, been bailing water out of the boats, taking a lot out of them. And now it is getting increasingly dangerous for sailing in the open sea as the winter begins to settle in. And they waited a good amount of time in Fair Havens, hoping for the weather to clear. Now, Paul the Apostle is a prisoner on this boat. And I know from Paul's own story that we read in 2 Corinthians and other places, that he was at death's door at least 11 times. Anybody stared down death 11 times? At least 11 times. Uh, he had been stoned, he had been flogged, he had been beaten. He had already, by the time this story happens, he had already experienced a lot of trouble at sea. In 2 Corinthians 11, he would talk about perils of the sea. He would talk about three prior shipwrecks before this one. Three prior shipwrecks. And he talks about being a night and a day in the deep. 
in, 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 in Hebrew thinking, that sunset to sunset, that means something happened in some shipwreck where he had to tread water for 24 hours. He, this guy has faced death very, very often. And he knows the sea, he's used to traveling by boat, Paul is, and so he suggests to the centurion, and he suggests to the owner and the captain of the boat, that it would not be a good idea to venture out. He's talking by way of experience. If you go out at this time of year, you're putting the lives of everybody in danger, you're putting this boat in danger, you're putting the whole cargo in danger. However, his advice was not heeded, because nobody liked to spend a winter in a place called Fair Havens. It was not deemed a suitable place to spend the winter. It was isolated and the crew wanted out. Just further along the coast, uh, as you head west on the island of Crete, there is another more better port called Phoenix. And it's close to other towns which would make the passing of the winter, because they'd have to spend the whole winter there, much more favorable and palatable for the sailors. And they're sitting there waiting in fair havens for weather to clear. And you know what? The weather cleared. And a nice, gentle breeze began to blow. And the crew thinks, that's what we've been waiting for. And we can make it to Phoenix and we can spend the winter there. And so they set sail along the coastline against the advice of Paul, who was very experienced in shipping around the Mediterranean. So it doesn't look like they have to go very far. But they get out of Fair Havens on their way to this place called Phoenix. When what happens is the wind begins to blow off the island of Crete down through the mountains. And it, it is a violent wind. And it begins to beat down. It is a furious storm. It is a typhoon. It's a whirlwind. Back in, in America we call it a northeaster. The boat has been carried away and it's unable to resist the storm, the elements, and the boat is driven to wherever the wind wants to drive it. Has anybody here ever felt your life is out of control and you can't seem to control the things that order your life around? Anybody been there? I mean, this is what is happening. And the boat is driven to a place called Clauda, which is a little small island off of Crete, about 23 miles from there. And the island only slightly diminished the power of the wind. This boat was towing behind it a smaller lifeboat. And they were having great difficulty in keeping that smaller lifeboat secure. It had been impossible to hoist it up during the storm. That lifeboat was in danger of being torn apart and the tow line being snapped. But being south of the island of Crete, they were somewhat sheltered from the fierceness of the winds, but it was still a massive storm, and only with great difficulty could they get that lifeboat hoisted onto the deck of the boat. How many have ever been at a storm at sea? I remember once Darla and I went on a ferry from here to Scotland. Never again will I have ham and eggs when I get on the ferry. <laughs> Never again. We spent a week on a cruise, the only cruise we've been on in our life. We spent half of the time laid out because we couldn't handle, and this is not even a storm. 
Can you just imagine what it's like being in a storm? In this storm, this main boat had taken a beating, and it was still taking a beating, because the storm was not letting up. And they made this discovery that the boat, under the pressure of the storm, was beginning to fall apart. How many know you don't want to be out in the middle of the ocean when the bottom of your boats is falling apart? And what they had to do is they had to undergird the boat. That means they wrapped it in ropes to tie it together to keep the planks from breaking off. Now, how many would like to be on this boat? I mean, this is the boat that they are in. To accomplish this, what the crewmen had to do is they had to take a long rope to the front of the boat, throw it over the front of the boat, let it out, and then walk back to the back of the boat with this rope and tie it on to the back end. And they would have to do that a dozen times or so just so they could hold the boat together so it wouldn't break up in the middle of the storm. And they had to do that in the middle of the storm as the wind continued to drive them. That is a difficult thing to do even in calm weather, but they were actually attempting to do this as the front of the boat rose and it crashed in the waves in typhoon-type weather. So what they did, according to Acts 27, is they put a sea anchor at the back of the boat and they toss it into the water, and that would have the effect of dragging. It would be like a brake in the back of the boat, like a parachute, to slow down the ship's momentum. And that way, they're trying to keep the boat from being just driven and tossed about by the wind. It's getting so fierce, and the wind is actually, probably, they think, taking them down to the coast of Africa. And they're very, very scared of being driven down to the coast of Africa because they knew there's rocky coasts there. They would crash. And so what they did is they dropped the sails of the boat so that it wouldn't catch the wind. And all anybody could do in Acts 27 was hang on for dear life. The Bible says the boat was being violently tossed around the storm. Let me explain what that means. It means the ship had a sea anchor dragging behind it as a brake, which means the waves were moving faster than the boat was. Can you picture that in your mind? The waves are taking you, but the waves are moving faster than you are. And so the waves, when they hit the back of your boat, it lifts the back of the boat up, and then it passes underneath the boat, and it goes up at the back end, flips up on the front end, and smashes back into the water all day long. On top of that, you've got the winds blowing the boat from side to side. Is anybody seasick? Just thinking about it. Just thinking about it. And in spite of tying the boat together with all these ropes, if you read through the story in Acts 27, the boat is taking on water and it is leaking because the waves are higher than the boat. Have you got this picture in your mind? The waves are higher than the boat. They were constantly having to bail water out. And so that the boat would not go down in the midst of the storm, they have to take some of the weight off the boat. They have to lighten it so it wouldn't sink so heavy. 
And so they start throwing valuable merchandise and throw it overboard. Which means all the profits are being lost. Which means the captain has no money to pay the crew. The storm, according to Acts 27, still does not abate, doesn't let up, and there's increasing even more danger. And they're in this condition of the boat being lifted up and slapped back down for three entire days. How well are you sleeping? For three entire days, it's being lifted and thrown, lifted and thrown, lifting and thrown, taking a beating. The boat is leaking. It's falling apart. It's just being battered. After three days, after unloading a lot of the cargo, they realize that the boat is still too heavy. We've got to lighten the boat even more. So they start throwing furniture. They throw their weapons. They throw their baggages off the board. Now listen to this. They even threw out the ship's tackle with their own hands. Now what do I mean by that? That means the ropes, the pulleys, everything to hoist the sails up and down. They had to unfasten it from the boat. Take it apart, dismantle the boat, dismantle this important equipment of the boat, and throw it overboard just to get rid of the weight. That shows how serious this was, because without the tackle, there is no easy way to raise or lower the sails. The ropes, the lines, the blocks, the pulleys, all went overboard in a last-ditch effort to lighten the ship even more. And yet the boat is taking on more water. And this required great sacrifice to lighten the ship even of the essentials. And they waited three days to make that decision to do that. My question is, why does it take us so long to decide to get rid of the weights that take us down? Why do we hold on to these things knowing they'll take us down? So the storm was so severe, as we keep reading through Acts chapter 27, that there's no visibility, there's no sun, and there's no stars for day after day. They haven't got a clue where in this water they are. They don't know if they're close to Egypt, they don't know if they're close to Greece, they don't know if they're close to Cilicia. They have no idea where they are because they have absolutely no sense of navigation. No clue where they are. They're completely disoriented as to the location and they don't even know what direction they are facing. Have you had a storm in life? You felt like that. They got to the point, even as experienced sailors, that all hope was lost for any kind of deliverance. They were waiting to die. They had lost all their appetite. I mean, who feels like eating in this? They're terrorized, discomfort, sleepless, seasickness, the pressure of danger, the labor. They hadn't eaten properly in a long time. They were getting physically incapacitated. They were mentally and they were emotionally demoralized. And their lives were over. There is a storm taken over over which nobody has control. Nobody can match it whatsoever. But, don't you like that word but? But, on board, 
there is a man of God. The world owes a lot to the men and the women of God. And God had spoken to this man that he had to go and appear before Caesar. So Paul the Apostle knew that no matter what was going on in this storm, even though he didn't know where he was, even though everybody was worn out with this whole thing, he knew he would not perish because God had spoken to him that he would appear before Caesar. But there is a man of God on board. Would you agree with me that the captain and the owner of the ship and the centurion should have listened to Paul's advice earlier and not even ventured out? But God is gracious. This man of God, who you know was Paul the Apostle, had a prayer life. And he was in prayer during all of this time, and he received an angelic visitation. The angel showed up. And the angel gave him a revelation and gave him a promise of comfort and a promise of security. And Paul shared that with the 275 other people that were on board there. And I like how he described God. God who I belong to and who I serve has sent his angel to me. And the answer in prayer is this. Nobody is going To perish. But you're going to lose the boat. And you're going to be shipwrecked on an island. But nobody is going to lose their lives. All would be saved if. There's always that word if. If you follow his advice. All would be saved if you followed his advice. You're going to be shipwrecked. Thus saith the Lord. Don't you like those kinds of prophetic words? You're going to be shipwrecked upon some certain island, and you don't even know where you're going to end up. Well, they have been in this typhoon weather for 14 days. Anybody seasick? 14 days they have been in this typhoon weather since they left the Fair Havens. They have been tossed to and fro from one end to another. And then, some of the sailors on board must have perceived that they were approaching some sort of land in the distance. And they can tell that by hearing the waves, the breaking of the waves. That was suggesting to them that they must be approaching land somewhere. And of course, uh, they would immediately have fear of being crashed upon rocks. And so what they do is they send out what's called a sounding line to fathom the depth of the ocean. And a little while later they would do it again and they discovered that the ocean was getting shallower and shallower. In other words, something had to be done immediately and they have no way to gauge because they can't see. They don't know how far away this land is. They can't see it, they can't see the coast, they can't see anything. They just know that they're approaching land from the soundings that they did. So what they did is they didn't dare move any further. They didn't want to go any further. So they put four anchors out from the back of the boat in the darkness of night. This is an unusual way to anchor a boat. 
But they put the four anchors at the back so that under this fierce storm that was going, that the boat wouldn't just swing around and the front of the boat would be smashed with the wind and the waves and the breakers. They were hoping that eventually daylight would come, the storm would eventually subside, then perhaps they could have a straight shot for this land that they don't even know what's in front of them yet. That's what they are thinking. But the problem is, the storm is not letting up. The storm was continuing to be so terrifying that even the experienced sailors secretly plotted to abandon the ship. They pretended that they wanted to go out and set anchors on the front of the boat as well, and they were getting in the lifeboat, and what they were going to do is they were just going to make for sure wherever it was, because they thought they stayed on the boat, it was certain death. But there is a prophet on board the boat. And somehow God revealed to Paul what these sailors were doing. They were pretending to go out, but they were just going to split the scene. And Paul said to the centurion in charge, and he was the guy who kept law and order on that boat in this circumstance, and he told them of what the sailors were intending to do. And he said, if those sailors split and they take their experience away from the rest of us, Everybody on board is going to perish. We need their skills. So the centurion by this time has learned to listen to the Apostle Paul and he tells his soldiers to immediately cut off the lifeboat. No one's going anywhere. Now, aren't you thrilled when somebody cuts off your lifeboat? Doesn't that sound exciting? Immediately cut off the lifeboat. But he had a visitation from God. He has reassurance in his heart. He is an obvious command of the situation. He has the attention of everybody in the boat. Now he urges everybody, take some food. I know you don't feel like eating, but you've gone 14 days without any proper eating. You're famished. You're weak. You need some food. He's now speaking as a prophet, and everybody knew that they should have listened to him before. She says, all 276 of us are going to be safe, but you need some nourishment because this storm is not over, and you need some strength and you need some nourishment to get through the rest of the storm. And so after they ate some food, they threw overboard all the remaining freight, including that precious cargo of wheat that was bound for Rome. They had to make this boat as light as possible. So in other words, by this time, the boat was completely stripped. There is nothing left on this boat except people. It has to be as light as possible if it's going to run into the beach ahead of it. Then finally, daytime arrived. And in the distance, they could see a shoreline, though nobody had a clue as to what it was or where they were. Could they run the boat aground there? The decision was made. They're going to have to just go for it. In order to go for it, they had to cut off all four anchors at the back. Now you got rid of the lifeboat. Now you're getting rid of your anchors as well. You just cut them off and they let the four anchors fall into the sea. 
and they lowered the rudders for steering purposes. And remember, they got rid of all the tackle before, and they had no easy way of putting a sail up. And they had to manually, without tackle, put the sails up to catch the wind so they could be driven towards the shore. But here the difficult part is, before the boat could reach the shore, it caught the wind with that sail, and it ran to the shore, but nobody could see the reef that was under the waves. Nobody could see it. And what that boat did... It got deeply stuck and it became immovable with such a jolt that it would have knocked everybody in that boat off their feet. And now the boat is stuck and is not at shore. Meanwhile, the wind is still blowing, the waves are still going, that heavy, violent wind and waves keep beating on the back of the boat, and the whole back of the boat is now falling into pieces. It's smashed into pieces, and everybody has gathered at the front of the boat. Anybody want to enjoy a shipwreck? You and I can't even begin to imagine the emotions, the physical drain, the stress, the fear of what's going on here. That's not the end of the story. It seemed as if now it's every man for himself. Except the problem was this. These, Paul and others, some of them are Roman prisoners. And you really don't want to be a Roman soldier and your prisoner escape on you. Because Roman law is this. If there is a prisoner in your custody and he escapes, you are executed. So you don't lose prisoners. And so now it's every man for himself. And no matter what excuse, Caesar's not going to listen and say, well, there was a storm at sea. That's no excuse for Caesar. You let your prisoner go. And so what the soldiers wanted to do now, is if there hadn't been enough death threats in this voyage, what the soldiers wanted to do now was execute all the prisoners, which includes Paul. But Julius the centurion wants to save Paul's life, and he stopped the soldiers from doing this puts his own life on the line because maybe Paul wouldn't escape it. maybe some of the other prisoners would instead he gives a command the command is this this boat's fallen apart it's only a matter of an hour or minutes and there will be no boat left throw yourselves into the sea and swim for shore If you can't swim, there are plenty of planks of wood out there. Grab one and kick your way to shore. Let it take you to shore. Whatever, a barrel, anything that floated. Get on it and just make your way to shore. At the end of Acts chapter 27, all of them, all 276 people, The captain, the owner, the prisoners, the passengers, the soldiers. Can you believe all 276 reached the shore alive? They are fatigued beyond description. They're cold. They're drenched to the skin. But they have landed safely 
as the storm is still raging about them. But the question is now, where are they? Where are they is the question. I think there's a reason why Luke, who wrote this book, tells the story at the end of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 28, he finally arrives in Rome, but he's shipwrecked. He doesn't know where he is. He's shipwrecked. And they're going to find out shortly where he is. Shipwrecked. Let me leave the story for a few minutes. I want to reminisce a little bit about different things in the book of Acts and how I believe it applies. In the book of Acts, Luke, who is the author, he highlights a struggle that the early church had with the commands and the commission of God. They were commanded to go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature to all nations, everywhere. But if you're familiar with the the flow of the book of Acts, you would realize that the early church in Jerusalem, those first Jewish believers, had a real and a profound experience of Pentecost. But nevertheless, their conscience was still bound by the traditions of Judaism. The first six chapters of the book of Acts is eight years of history. You can read it pretty quickly. You realize it's eight years of history. They have seen a lot of the demonstration of the power of God. But even though the command was to go into all the world, you discover that within eight years, they never even went to Judea. They stayed in Jerusalem. And everything about that early church was Jewish. It was centered around the temple. It was centered around the synagogue. And they certainly would have no dealings with Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit wanted them out to the whole world. And yet, even in spite of their experience, their traditions kept them in the city of Jerusalem. They needed to make a paradigm shift in their thinking, but they found it impossible to do so. They failed to see that Judaism was the husk, while the gospel was the corn. How many know that once the corn is matured, you really don't need the husk anymore? It served its purpose. In particular, the book of Acts highlights a struggle that early church had, the Jerusalem church, how they resisted the acceptance of Gentiles into the body of Christ. Remember the story of Peter going to the house of Cornelius? He argues with the Lord, and the Lord has got to give him a vision three times to convince him it's okay to go into the house of a Gentile. And even after he did in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, all his buddy apostles back in in Jerusalem called him on the carpet. Did you really do this? Did you really go to the house? And I like Peter's answer. He says, don't blame me. This is God's doing. The Holy Spirit bade me go. And there was this resistance 
to reaching out to Gentiles because Gentiles don't know the law. Gentiles don't keep the Ten Commandments. Gentiles don't know about sacrifices. Gentiles have no concept of a Sabbath day. Gentiles, they have no morality in their religion. Matter of fact, they don't even have a religion. It's just heathenism. But they had to accept the fact that God accepted Gentiles. Because how do you deal with Cornelius? He's a Gentile. Filled with the Holy Ghost. Spoken tongues like we did. Same experience. Received the same spirit. And so they had to adjust their thinking here. And once they had to accept the fact that God would take on Gentiles, then the next step, in their fight with the tradition that's going on in their head, the next step was, well, we now got to make these Gentiles and convert them to Judaism. They got to be circumcised. They got to keep the Sabbath. They got to keep the dietary laws. And they... All the way through the book of Acts, you'll discover that the church in Jerusalem never, not even by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, the church in Jerusalem was never able to set itself free from an old conscience. Which means this. They failed to embrace the heart of God and they were severely limited as to their usefulness. To God. So, what happens in the book of Acts? You take this story in Acts 27, and now let me bring it forward to Acts chapter 6, Acts 7, and Acts chapter 8. About the story of a man named Stephen. There's a persecution that arose because of Stephen. Do you remember this story? Do you remember a man named Saul was consenting to his death? And you remember a persecution rose against the church of Jerusalem over the death of Stephen. And it seemed as if a storm was released, uncontrollable storm, a fierce storm, a storm that was taking people's lives, a storm that was putting believers into prison, believers into jail, a storm where children were taken away from their parents. A storm was released against that Jerusalem church and they were driven by the wind, so to speak, over which they had no control as persecution chased them and chased them and chased them. And life as they knew it came to an end. They were driven from their familiar surroundings and they were forced to be immersed in different cultures. That early church was driven by the winds of persecution and they crashed in a certain place. And they crashed in a place called Antioch and you saw that on the map. They were driven there by the winds of a storm. But the interesting thing is this. They were driven to a harvest field of Gentiles. Listen carefully. Against their will, they were driven to a harvest field of Gentiles where those Gentiles were ready and they were open to receive something that had never been offered to them before. Now with that in mind, let me go back to Acts 27, the storm that we just read about in Acts chapter 27. I want you to notice three things about that storm. In the time of storm, 
there was a great effort to try to hold things together. They tried to turn that boat into a cocoon by putting so many ropes around it to keep it from breaking apart. They tied that boat together. There is a repeated attempt to hold things together, ropes around the boat. We want to keep things we know without change. They struggled to do that, but it didn't work. Another thing to notice, if they're going to survive the storm, they had to lighten the load, and then three times in Acts 27, they kept having to lighten the load, lighten the load, and lighten the load. They had to learn to throw things overboard that they thought were necessary. If they're going to survive, we've got to get rid of some stuff. And they took them a long time. They knew they had to get rid of it, but they waited for three days before they threw that stuff overboard. You know... And the other thing to notice, that being filled with fear and confusion, there is a real need for reassurance from God that God is with them. And while it may appear that you are at the mercy of uncontrollable circumstances, the fact is you're not at their mercy. God is changing your course. Come on. You're not at the mercy of uncontrollable circumstances. God is changing your course and He's causing you, you have to survive, throw out things that you thought you needed. And God is changing the course. The result of Acts 27 is that they came to a place called the island of Melita, which you now know as Malta in the Mediterranean Sea. We'll look at this shortly. But they came to a ripe harvest field that was ready to hear what Paul and his companions had to share. When you were in the boat, and when you're going through the storm, there was no perception of where we were going. No perception of it whatsoever. But once you have crash-landed, you discover hard way to get there, but you got to where God wants you to be. They had to unload a lot of baggage. They had to unload a lot of stuff to survive. They can't take it into the future with them. Did they know, in the middle of that storm, did they know that they were being sent to a place of hearts that were prepared for revival? Come on now. Did they know that that storm put them into a place where hearts were prepared for a revival? I should say that again. Did they know that that storm put them into a place where hearts were prepared for revival? They had no concept of it. All they were doing is try to hang on to life as they knew it, keep things together. They were crying out for their lives, didn't know what was happening. Their life was being torn apart and ripped apart, totally changed, against their will, seemed to be at the mercy of uncontrollable circumstances, just for them to land into a place that God had prepared for revival. That's good news. 
That is good news. The fact is this. We have heard prophetic words how many times in the last couple of months, but the harvest is ready. How many times have we heard it? The harvest is ready. The question is not whether the harvest is ready. The question is, are we ready? That's the question. Are we ready? Considering the multiplicity and the variety of prophetic words that we have heard, we can expect a harvest. Now listen to this. If we're to believe what God has said, and there's no reason not to, we can expect a harvest of unchurched people. Will we receive them? Who can God trust them to? Can we adjust so God can trust us with that? What are our responsibilities? One of the great things, the first responsibility is God needs everybody to be a servant. Everybody's got to be a servant. There's jobs to do, plenty of them. And it takes a servant heart and a servant mentality and we're going to keep serving our time to the day we die. We're servants. We have to have servants. The book of Acts outlines these kinds of questions. It shows us the failure of the Jerusalem church to embrace the full heart of God because they allowed their tradition to trump Scripture. Tradition was more important than Bible to them. There are things that have to be thrown overboard. The book of Acts shows us that a new model is needed. And in Acts chapter 11, there's the birth of a new church at Antioch. To move models requires a paradigm shift in thinking. Even simple questions, what is the gospel? Too much of the time we equate the word gospel with meaning presenting the plan of salvation as if that is the gospel. Reduce the gospel to four spiritual laws or something of that nature. Well, let me put it this way. The gospel includes salvation, but salvation is not an equal term to the gospel. The gospel is much, much larger than that. What is the gospel? That's for a different time. The book of Acts shows us the teaching of the word has got to be preeminent. All the way through the book of Acts, it's always the word that conquers. It says, and the word increased, and the word greatly multiplied. It's the word that brings the victory. And there has to be the faithful preaching, there has to be the faithful teaching, constant, constant growth of the word, because it is the word that brings about the conquering. That's a theme that you've got through the book of Acts. Another theme that you've got in the book of Acts is the unrelenting reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. I am unashamedly Pentecostal in my view of the Holy Spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit. We need the gifts of the Spirit. We need the guidance of the Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We must crave and crave and crave the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that does the work in people's lives and in people's hearts. Another thing we learn from the book of Acts is that we have to be unrelenting and unceasing in prayer. 
The prayer meeting ought to be probably the best attended meeting of a church. Unrelenting and unceasing in petitioning God with boldness and aggressiveness in seeking God in prayer. The harvest is ready. Are we? The harvest is ready. Are we? You and I are to make God known by reflecting His nature, reflecting His character. Our last thoughts in the book of Exodus for a while is we know that God's nature is mercy. We know that God's nature is long-suffering. We know that God's nature is goodness. And this is what God wants to be able to say to an unbelieving world. He wants to say, do you know what I'm like? Look at my church. That's the goal of God. Do you know what I'm like? Look at my people. So, people are looking at us. What are they seeing? We are called to reflect the nature and character of God. The world needs to see a body of people who are fervently in love with each other and serve one another and give to one another in a self-sacrificing way to demonstrate the character of God by a new community called the people of God. And the world needs that witness. By this shall all men know, Jesus said. You are my disciples by your love one for another. In other words, we have to be love incarnate. Where are we? Let's go back to Acts 28 and finish off the story. Where did they shipwreck? They found out that they had been shipwrecked on an island called Melita, or now known as Malta. They discovered that there were people there that they called barbarians. This island is made up of barbarians. I know in modern English that sounds terrible to call somebody a barbarian. But what that means in the Bible is that they spoke a different language, their own native dialect. It means they have no trace of Christianity or Judaism in their background. In other words, completely unchurched people. They were shipwrecked on an island of people who had no exposure to Judaism, no exposure to Christianity. It wasn't part of their mindset, worldview, or culture whatsoever. The 276 made it ashore there. They were drenched to the skin. They had no change of clothes. They were drained of energy. They were weak. They were fatigued physically. They were mentally and emotionally beyond description. Though they're on land, the fact is the storm is still ranging around them. The wind is cold and they're hungry. And they need some warmth and they need some substance. And can you believe it? The barbarians kindled a fire to get them all warm. They received all those who were shipwrecked. Now Paul the Apostle, being a servant as well as a prophet, was busy gathering kindling for the fire and he must have picked up this venomous snake that was, must have been frozen solid or something. I don't know. Uh, but then as he drops into the fire, the heat makes that thing come alive. And this venom, venomous snake attaches itself to Paul's hands. These superstitious people, these heathens, saw this. And their heathen religion said, well... The gods aren't going to let this murderer get away with it. He didn't die in the shipwreck. 
He must be some sort of murderer, and even though he escaped the sea, justice is not going to let him go free. The gods are not going to let this man go free. But instead of swelling up, and instead of falling dead, Paul just carries on. There is a place for unchurched people to see signs and wonders. It's what they need to see. God had given them a sign. They immediately changed their attitude about Paul. He can't be a murderer. This man must be a god. And they receive Paul, puts him in the lodging of the chief man on the island, and the chief's man's name is uh, Publius. In a short period of time, after a few days, the father Publius lays sick. He's got fever and dysentery. Paul went into him, prayed for him, and the man was healed. News began to spread around that island that there is deliverance for people who have sickness. And the Bible says in Acts 28, the sick of the island came, and through a ministry of the Holy Ghost, these people were healed, and the signs that Mark chapter 16 tells us about had taken place on the island of Malta. Go, and in my name... You cast out devils in my name. You speak with new tongues in my name. You take up serpents. That's what happened to Paul. In my name you lay hands upon the sick and they will be healed. And the miracles of Mark chapter 16 that Jesus said would happen were being enacted in that place. What's that got to do with us? I think everything. I think it's got everything to do with us. Because everybody here in your personal lives or your church life all took a voyage you weren't planning on taking. Couldn't hold it together. But folks, we've been brought to a good place. Let me say it again. We've been brought to a good place. Look what the Lord has done. Look what He has done. A lot of stuff had to get thrown overboard in the process. A lot of changes. A lot of differences and a lot of things. And why has He done this? I'll tell you why he's done it. It's because there is a harvest that has been prepared for us. You can say amen or something. There is a harvest that has been prepared for us. This place has been raised up for a reason. It's different. It's going to be different than anything we've known before. It has, and that story has everything to do with us. Because a lot of us wondered where we were going, what was happening, why. 
and all these kinds of questions, we've been shipwrecked in a good place. Amen? We've been shipwrecked in a good place because there is a harvest that has been designed to hear what you and I have to say. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? There is a harvest designed for you and I have to say. This is an act of God. This is the will of God. All I can say is, Lord, that we've been driven, end up here by no process of our own. All I can say is, Lord, build your church. Build your church. Move by the power of your Spirit. Give us the ability to preach and to teach your Word. Give us passion to pray in an unceasing, in an unrelenting manner. Because we haven't made this journey to do business as usual. We're here through quite a process that none of us wanted to take. We're here by quite a process because there's a harvest designed for what you and I have to share. Amen? I'm going to ask Darla to come back to the keyboard. There's a song called Still.